Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books from Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke with Ulrich Plotz about his book, Language and History, and Theodore W. Adorno's Notes to Literature. I thought that Dr. Plotz had a lot of fascinating things to say about Adorno's work, particularly Adorno's views on language, which is someone interested in the philosophy of language I found particularly fascinating. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today, we're speaking with Ulrich Plotz about his book, Language and History, and Theodore W. Adorno's Notes to Literature. Dr. Plotz, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Dr. Ploss, if you could just briefly say a little bit about yourself, your academic background and career. Yes, um, I am originally from Germany. I took some undergraduate courses in a number of uh, fields, actually, at the University of Hamburg. I moved on to um, Michigan for my graduate work, and uh, I think sort of the relevant work that is at Michigan, um, relevant for the uh, book we're going to discuss today, uh, was with uh, Timothy Barty. Uh, I then um, transferred uh, to NYU, where I finished my PhD uh, under the guidance of Eva Goyen, and um, there were some important people I worked with uh, that had a significant impact on the shaping of the, the, the book project we were talking about today. Uh, so these people are uh, Paul Fleming, uh, Richard Seaberg, uh, Alexander Garcia Dutman, and um, also I should mention uh, Jay Bernstein at the New School. So my schooling um, really primarily is in uh, literary theory, literary criticism. Um, the move into questions of critical theory came about really by my looking at how philosophers read literary texts. So um, the um, uh, attraction uh, that I felt for for Adorno's work was not so much that I was approaching it as a student of critical theory, but when I first came to Adorno, I really came to him as a philologist, as someone who wanted to find out um, whether Adorno's interpretations of literature were simply impositions uh, of preconceived theoretical structures or perhaps whether they truly engaged with the texts in question. So, um, um, I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was hoping to sort of encounter a situation where it wasn't simply uh, an either-or situation where you would either sort of approach Adorno as, as a philosopher or as uh, uh, or as a philologist. So, um, and my um, uh, sense was that um, uh, Adorno's uh, literary Essays did indeed succeed in um, sort of bridging sort of a, a, a very sort of strict dividing line between sort of philosophical discourse and literary discourse on on, on opposite sides. Um, so it became clear to me as I as I was reading uh, Adorno through the course of my graduate career that um, his literary criticism 
is not simply an application of critical theory, but it's also not simply a work of conventional criticism. So, um, but I think what, one of the aspects that, that made it so attractive uh, uh, to, to, to me to, to work on Adorno was that, that here we have um, the work uh, of someone who is perhaps the most prominent uh, representative of critical theory, um, uh, working on a subject matter in which he's not an expert. Um, he was, of course, you know, an expert in, in aesthetics, um, and in particular uh, uh, in music, and there, there, there clearly is a musical uh, sensibility uh, exhibited in, in much of his literary criticism. Um, uh, but um, what um, I found particularly uh, enticing is that there really is an incredible uh, attention that he pays to detail and nuance. Um, and frequently in these essays, there are these uh, moments um, that address uh, something that is seemingly marginal. For instance, when he reads uh, a poem by um, the early 20th century poet uh, Stefan George, and uh, in his reading, he uh, detects um, a semantically superfluous article and it makes this sorry particle it makes this particle really the center of his interpretation so so um um so, so, so there really is an incredible skill uh, for 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 finding elements in literary text that are, that are seemingly uh, marginal and, and unimportant and, and showing that they actually deeply matter um so i think this is sort of most um generally what um uh, attracted me um uh to these uh to these uh, to these essays and um um i think that the um final reason why i settled on uh the notes uh of uh, the notes of literature as um a topic for my dissertation i should say so the book is based on my on my and dissertation um uh is uh, that you, you really cannot put them into a fixed rubric, saying this is you know works of mostly philology, philosophy, criticism, or or, or, or critical theory. Um, okay, so um, so maybe I should just go into the into the book itself at this yeah, point, yeah. talk a little bit. Yeah, about, that would be fine, um, Doctor Puss. Um, the one thing I thought that maybe would yeah. help us transition to the book, mm -hmm. um, and you kind, you briefly touched on this, but I thought this was interesting. Is it, maybe if you could briefly describe. Uh, maybe your imperative or your motivation in uh, choosing notes to literature in particular, uh, or oh, sure, really yeah. choosing Adorno mm -hmm. in particular, and maybe that mm -hmm. sort of sense that you wanted to kind of bridge the gap between uh, mm -hmm. his philosophy and his attempts at literary criticism. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, different ways of um, uh, framing this. Um, um, one way to look at this is, of course, I can look at it as um, something pertaining to my own intellectual um, uh, biography. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something to do, I think, that's um, uh, particular to my situation um, uh, coming to the U.S. from, uh, 
from Germany. And uh, Adorno being uh, one, if not the sort of most most dominant public intellectual in um, Germany after World War II, and um, someone who is still of considerable significance even now, many decades after his after his death. So um, um, Adorno in Germany is really a kind of a household name, and um, uh, when you study in uh, Germany and you um, deal with questions of, uh, you know, for you know, the example, the, the, the significance of literature after the war, you cannot really get around uh, Adorno and, and and Adorno's verdicts on uh, literature and poetry, and of course most. Importantly, his, his uh, famous, uh, perhaps all too famous sentence about the impossibility of writing poetry after Auschwitz. Um, so, so, so this is sort of hovering in the background for me. That this is um, something I uh, encountered very early on um, in my academic career. Um, it then went sort of um, underground, one might say. I, I pursued various other questions uh, for for a while, and it's then something that came back. And um, so um, the reason that um, I think I returned uh, uh, to uh, Adorno was that I was, uh, that I found myself uh, in a department uh, in which um, um, literature and uh, theory um, were oftentimes viewed to be sort of in, in a kind of competitive, competitive relationship with one another. You could even see it amongst the graduate students. Um, you were the students who did theory, and then there were the students that did literature, and there was sort of mutual disdain that was practiced <laughs> at certain moments. Of I certain, definitely have experience with You probably familiar with that. Um, and... Um, I think I want to get into this a little bit later in the interview, but okay. um, um, uh, uh, let me maybe just say right now in a very preliminary fashion um, 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 that when you uh, look at um, what, what could be considered you know, the major uh, works of Adorno, the, 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 the work that he really labored on um, um, during the last decade of his life in the 1960s, you have the aesthetic theory and you have negative dialectics. Uh, and it is quite remarkable that in both of these works, he um, uh, consistently reflects on question of language and uh, on language as the medium of representation for literature. This is this is this is an interest of his that is um, exhibited very early on in his career in his, his, his early lectures from the from from the 1930s. At that point, very much um, under the influence of uh, Benjamin, and, and, and in particular Benjamin's um, uh, failed second dissertation on the on the Baroque tragic drama. So, so it's something that's that that's with Adorno throughout his career, um, um, uh, but it's it's something that um, I think one cannot get around if one wants. To really understand what his philosophy is all about, and I think if one really wants to understand what his philosophy is all about, one obviously has to you know, read carefully the last works, uh, in, in particular work such as Negative Dialectic. So, um, so my sense now was that it would be helpful um, uh, to look at Adorno's reflections 
on language when he talks about a form of art that takes place in the very medium of language, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is this is all very tricky um, because language for Adorno is usually treated in a metaphorical register, um, uh, meaning um, when he talks about, uh, let's say, other art forms, non-literary art forms in aesthetic theory, he f- frequently mentions something like Sprachähnlichkeit, um, which means language likeness, okay? so that something is like language. So here you have a reference to language where you don't necessarily have to take, have to understand language in the literal sense as verbal language. Okay, so there's a metaphorical register here, uh, which 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 sort of complicates every interpretive effort. Um, um, uh, then in a text such as um, negative dialectics. Um, you have uh, in the introduction, I believe it is uh, in negative dialectics, um, uh, you have um, a reference to um, rhetoric. Um, he says uh, in the introduction something like, um, in, in philosophy, rhetoric represents what cannot be thought except in language. So, so, so rhetoric is not something... Um, that philosophy can get around. It's something that must be integral to philosophy. Uh, and um, uh, rhetoric for him marks a moment in philosophic discourse in which philosophy tries to think or to articulate something that can only be articulated in language. Okay. So, 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 so what, 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 what? It appears that he seems. To be interested in um, language as a very particular medium and uh, in in language as making it possible to express something I'm, I, I, don't, I don't want to quite identify what the something is that cannot be uh, expressed or articulated in any other way for example that, that couldn't be sort of simply be translated in any kind of logical language right um, uh, so um, it appears that the very basis of his uh, understanding of what language is, that language must always be more than simply a system of science and simply a system of communication. Um, and now, sort of with, this, with this sort of very sort of bare-bones first look at his thought on language in mind, it makes more sense uh, why he would be so interested in uh, works of literature um, because in works of literature, of course, you have works of art that are constructed out of words, out of language. Um, 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 but clearly, what distinguishes um, a literary work of art from, from, from some other kind of text is that it's not just there to communicate some kind of information, right? Um, uh, but that by virtue of being a work of art, some, something else happens there in language. Okay? So... Um, um, this is why um, um, I thought that um, looking at uh, Adorno's essays on, on literature would be more than simply sort of a nice diversion from the, you know, really um, intimidating and serious 
main works, although that certainly played a role. <laughs> um, um, but um, that um, in these literary essays, there, there would be an opportunity to um, look a little bit more closely at how he reflects on language, because he does this always very quickly in the major works, and there are never any examples. Right? Um, um, things are simply decreed in a kind of apodictic fashion. And so, in the essays, he takes, it takes a little bit more time. Things don't happen quite so fast. There's a little bit more lingering with, with, with actual examples and actual details. I mean, it's astonishing when you look at the book such as um, Aesthetic Theory, how very few examples are in there. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a, a, a book about aesthetics that, that says very little about concrete examples of artworks, actually. Um, um, and that's that's emphatically not the case in the essays on uh, literature. Um, so um, may, maybe this has helped to explain my motivation um, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me. Let me maybe observe a little bit more about about um, the essays uh, on on literature and and sorry I forgot to answer your question why you know why the notes to literature okay I should say that um, um, not all of Adonis' essays on literature are contained in these two volumes actually originally there I mean there are four volumes in uh, um, in German and. They've been translated um, as a two-volume uh, edition. Um, there are a number of excellent and important essays on literature in the volume Prisms, for instance. Um, um, but this was simply sort of kind of a practical matter that um, for the purposes of constructing a dissertation and constructing a book, I thought it might be helpful to simply focus on one corpus in particular, because um, Adorno really thought about these uh, four volumes of notes to literature as really a complete work in itself. I mean, he, he really put meticulous care into how they were edited and, 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 and what essays were included, the sequencing of the essays, oh, and so on. The titles the essays were given, right? Um, uh, notes to literature is kind of um, a little, little musician's uh, in-joke. It refers um, uh, to Mendelssohn um, and his piano pieces, the songs without words. The original idea was to have a volume called Words Without Songs, and and that then turned into Notes to Literature. So sort of the, 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 musical, the musical subtext is very clearly articulated in the very title of the work. Um, 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 the German word Noten, um, translated as, as notes, I mean, it really means musical score, right? Um, um, I'm uh, mentioning this because um, it is, it is um, important to be aware that these essays, you could call them performance pieces, um, uh, because they were all performed in public. So they were all written for specific public occasions. I, 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 I want to say a little bit more about that, that later. That, that, that's, that's a really important aspect of the book. But it, uh, it means that these 
uh, essays uh, on literature um, are very different from um, a work like aesthetic theory because they weren't written with the intention of developing a coherent concept, let's say, of, of literary theory, but they were written because there was a demand being put upon him. Right? They were basically all commissioned essays, one might say. Mm. Um, they were they were written for particular occasions um, um, that arose within the cultural life of 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 um, uh, post-war uh, Germany. Um, so, um, what um, I'm trying to do then um, uh, in the book is um, to show that within these, this, this smaller form, I could perhaps call it sort of this, this minor aesthetic form of the literary essay, um, uh, Adorno allows himself, allows his, his readings, his interpretations to be significantly shaped in analysis and argument by the texts that he reads. So, so I found that there is precisely not a kind of imposition that, that, that's happening, but it's, it's rather the other way around. It's, 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 um, there, there you have sort of this, 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 this strange, uh, I guess we can call it, um, mimetic phenomenon, um, uh, that, um, um, Adorno, for instance, let me give you one example, um, when he reads, um, this, um, very, very sort of stereotypical, cliched, completely unintellectual romantic poet, uh, Josef von Eichendorf, um, he starts using in his analysis one of the words that Eichendorf himself uses in most of his uh, poems, sort of a very cliched, romantic word called rauschen, which means something like rustling, sort of the rustling of leaves or of water. Um, it's a, um, a kind of um, a noise that seems to, um, if you're in a particular mindset, <laughs> If you're in a particular mindset, it, it might seem to communicate something to you, but it really doesn't mean anything. It's 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 not a semantic noise. It's not it's not language. Um, um, so this is this is a word that is uh, used ex really excessively in these uh, poems. And what happens is that Adorno sort of turns this poetic romantic word into a quasi analytic term in his essay. Right, um, and, and and this is this is something that simply wouldn't be possible in in the aesthetic theory. It's 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 it's, it's only possible because there is this this very strange process of a kind of mimetic identification with the texts that he reads. Right, and um, one way to think about this is that what uh, Adorno does is that he um, uh, approaches uh, a literature with the ear of a musician. He says somewhere um, um, at some point that he actually thinks with his ears. So that it's not simply about reading literature, but it's also about listening to literature. So um, I 
imagine that the way he would have read literature was by reading it out loud. Right. Um, and I had said earlier that uh, the uh, essays were also sort of performed live. They were, they were given as public lectures or um, frequently also as, as radio lectures. Adorno very actively in the 50s and 60s discovered um, the medium of the radio and had a, had a very active career on radio and later even on television. And um, so the so, so, so the, the, the modes of these essays is that you, you're supposed to really listen to them and also the way that I think Adorno oftentimes reads literary text is um, by not simply reading them silently, but it seems that he really, really listens to them. So there are they're, 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 they're certain tonal qualities, um, in particular in his readings of poetry, that, that really come out very strongly in, uh, in some of these essays. Um, so... Um, I should say that um, in in writing on um, notes to literature, you are faced with um, something like 30 to 40 essays. So unless one wanted to try to distill some kind of coherent literary theory, which I'm not trying to do, but if, I, if one were to try to do that, one would probably have to give some kind of um, synoptic reading of all of these essays. Um, uh, what I'm doing instead is I uh, choose uh, a number of essays and I do close readings of these essays, um, which is convenient in that um, one doesn't necessarily have to read the book from, from um, um, front to back. One can actually read it by simply reading an individual essay uh, here and there, and I think sort of if I if I if I had to pinpoint the backbone of the book, I'd say it's probably the sequence of the essay on Stefan George followed by the essay on um, on Heinrich Heine. Um, so there's much that I do not talk about uh, in my book. So uh, I'm I'm not talking about the most well-known essays. Um, uh, such as uh, his essays that attack um, other leftist intellectuals, such as uh, Lukács and Brecht. Um, I also um, uh, do not discuss his two uh, canonical essays on uh, Beckett and Hölderlin. Instead, um, I focus on sort of, well, partially neglected authors and, and, and also authors that um, represent an intellectual tradition that seems to be utterly incompatible with what critical theory stands for. So um, Eichendorf, Borchardt, and George, they all belong to a conservative uh, tradition of German literature. And uh, it is kind of Surprising that um, uh, uh, Adorno would be so um, would be so attracted to them. Um, I um, I have um, a number of speculations <laughs> about uh, why um, uh, this is um, uh, the case. Um, perhaps I should go. Perhaps I should address this right now. Um, And um, one way of uh, looking at this uh, preference for these conservative uh, poets 
is um, by um, looking a little bit at the historical um, context of these essays. So um, they're composed after Adorno returns uh, from his time in, in America, in, in New York and L.A. And um, Adorno, after his return, uh, finds himself confronted with um, a country that in no way has come uh, to terms with what has just happened, with um, you know, the crimes that have just been um, committed. Um, so the question then, of course, immediately arises, what is, what is the task now of uh, critical theory uh, after the war? And uh, the task for Adorno primarily seems to be a pedagogical task, right? I mean, he, um, he writes a number of essays that address this. It's also something that's addressed in negative dialectics. And he says we have to account for a new um, categorical imperative. Uh, that is, we have to act in such a way that Auschwitz will never be repeated. And, of course, this famous statement about poetry after Auschwitz fits right in, 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 in with that. Um, so, um, now, one would think intuitively, okay, this, this should mean that Adorno simply returns to sort of the progressive elements of the German intellectual and, and historical tradition and simply discards all the problematic aspects of this history. But that's precisely what he doesn't do, right? Um, because that would be a little too easy. That would perhaps be simply another denial of what has happened by simply saying, well, we still have some good guys in the can, we're just going to focus on them. Um, so what, what, what he does seems at first glance uh, counterintuitive. He, at, at, at times, very provocative, picks out authors that have been discredited. Um, uh, so um, uh, Stefan George would be one such um, heavily discredited um, uh, offer um, uh, you know a kind of um, um, aristocratic um, uh, elitist who um, uh, propagated an ideal of, of, of poetry as, as something sort of radically removed from um, from the masses um, propagated an ideal of poetry as something that's matter of privilege for the very few um, and um, Adorno, I mean, so the redemptive critique as Adorno practices it doesn't simply mean that he just says, oh, you know, don't be so critical of Georgi, he's great after all. No, he's actually extremely critical in his judgment of Georgi. Um, 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 but he really puts his finger on Georgi's treatment of language in, for instance, um, Georges' translations. So, um, uh, Georges is someone who um, actively translated you know, French symbolist uh, poetry into German. And um, what, what Adorno finds intriguing about this exercise, and he actually basically says Georges is more important 
as a translator than as than as an original poet um uh is that um um the organ managed to make the German language sound like something else entirely. Here again, so you have you have an appreciation of language that's guided by a kind of oral experience, an experience of listening, and 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 experiencing something you can only experience by listening. And um, um, Adorno sometimes describes this as a kind of uh, déjà vu experience that you can have with language. So, w what does this mean? Um, Let's say you listen to a poem by Georgo, or perhaps let's say not a poem by Georgo, but by a translation of Georgo. And um, you read or you listen, and it seems to you that what you're reading, what you're listening to, is some kind of quotation. So this is this is this is a very simple sort of um, aesthetic effect that 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 can take place. And for all for, for, for Adorno, this isn't just some ephemeral um, uh, effect. It's, it's, it's not a mere fleeting phenomenon, but this fleeting phenomenon of of having this déjà vu experience is really important because it signals um, uh, to him that language can function as a kind of storehouse, I guess one could say, a kind of memory would be a better term. Uh, language can serve as a kind of memory. Um, for certain, uh, we could call them um, um, experiences that are no longer accessible to us. Mm. So language, language for him can really be a medium of of history. But what's important here is that the kind of history he thinks about is not necessarily a history that has taken place as such. But what is perhaps even more important that language can be a memory of a history that hasn't taken place. Okay, this is this is this peculiar phenomenon. It's it's not actually a quotation of anything that ever existed, but it sounds like a quotation, and that at least opens up the possibility to conceive or to think about the possibility of difference. And of course, this goes back to the main the major project of what critical theory is about, right? So that uh, critical theory is not simply uh, we could say uh, an a negation, a rejection of the world as it is, but it's a negation for the purpose of establishing the possibility of difference. And the possibility of difference is not simply something that's posited in a, in a kind of future direction, but it actually has to grow out of a reading of history. Okay, So you have to become aware of the fact that history is not a one-way street, but that there are always many possibilities in history, uh, that there are always missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so Adorno thinks that it is through listening to poetic language that you can actually get a sense of these missed opportunities in the past. This is sort of like, I guess, um, a very strong Benjaminian um, uh, motif that is uh, that is at play here in these essays. So, so the redemptive critique of problematic authors such as Georges is not just um, an attempt. So, um, sort of rewrite their reception. It's also an attempt to help us think about um, uh, history as 
um, uh, mo uh, history is more than simply a collection of of facts or of actual events. And um, now one other aspect I should point out having to do with um, um, these uh, redemptive critiques of problematic authors is um, um, that since the essays, as I mentioned earlier, are occasional works, they 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 they, they address particular situations in post-war Germany. Uh, they often are meant to also provoke the audience. Right? So, uh, for instance, um, when he writes his um, essay on um, someone, uh, a figure slightly similar uh, to Georg, a contemporary of Georg, the poet uh, um, Rudolf Borchert. He does so at the height of the student movement. So this will be precisely the point at which you know the public pressure, the pressure coming from the students, and of course Adorno sort of against his will becomes one of the, the, the really key figure in this key figures in the student movement uh, in Germany, when uh, the expectation quite clearly is that he would, you know, I guess lecture on uh, on the left wing or, uh, or or Marxist author. He doesn't do that. Um, so there seems to be a, 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 provo a provocative dimension here as well, um, uh, a dimension that says, basically, uh, look, we have we have we have a tradition that we have to come to terms with. So we could. So I I think one might say um, what one can find in in, in the notes of literature is uh, in a way a critical theories attempt to work through uh, what one could call its German problem, uh, also to work through its own roots, of course, in the German tradition. It's, 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 it's really an accounting of what does it mean um, uh, you know, to uh, engage with German works of culture, also what does it mean to write in the German language, because I mean, Adorno actually says when, when being asked in the 50s, why did she come back from the United States? He said, well, pretty much for one reason, uh, because they wanted to be able again to, um, um, to work in German exclusively. Okay, so um, now what, um, what I haven't talked about um, uh, and what is of course um, uh, crucial is um, the form of these uh, essays. Um, I had only um, sort of hinted at briefly a kind of a mimetic dimension that one um, can experience uh, when reading some of these uh, essays. Um, and uh, one way um, to um, uh, look at um, the form of uh, uh, the essay that uh, Adorno uh, picked here is, of course, simply to say um, well, the, the essay is um, a form of a criticism that always starts with something that is already there. Um, um, I mean, quite simply, um, an essay on literature is always about the literary work that already exists. So, in that sense, the essay as a form is always secondary to a subject matter that is already there. Um, so, now, this, 
uh, entails um, for Adorno's uh, method in the essays um, that the essays fit in very well with his overall philosophical intention. Um, and um, in order to get a, get a sense of what his overall philosophical intention is, it is important to emphasize what Adorno is against. Okay, I mean, after we're dealing here with critical theory, and critical theory is very clear um, about what it is against. <laughs> um, so um, um, Adorno is very much and very emphatically, again and again throughout his career, against a philosophy of first principles in, ev in which everything can be accounted for. Okay? So, because once you, once you enter a system in where everything can be counted, nothing slips through, right? So you actually end up in a, in, a, in a system which everything can be counted, identified, and in a way, in such a system, there is no longer any space left for freedom. And that means what Adorno calls geist, or spirit, or, or mind, or rationality, um, therefore would become simply a, a principle of domination in which everything that's, that's different, or I think he, this word is non-identical, in which everything that is non-identical is forced to conform, similar to a commodity that one uh, possesses. So, for instance, in his um, book on, on, on Husserl, um, um, he um, uh, writes that um, philosophy is in danger of becoming like mathematics. Um, it becomes a science that starts with one, with the idea that everything that comes after one is also some, something that can be counted, that can be quantified. Um, so what Adorno, what Adorno does is that really he, he very forcefully rescinds this idea of first philosophy. One might say he always starts with two, so the Counting one has always already happened, um, and um, um, this underscores this recurrent anti-Platonic motif um, in his thought. That um, this is this is this is um, of course also a very strongly Nietzschean aspect in Adorno's thinking. This hostility to any kind of uh, system building. Um, uh, because systems for him are really designed to eliminate chance, to eliminate contingency. And this is precisely what the essay doesn't do. Right? The essay reintroduces chance into the process of thought. Um, so, um, so there are, I mean, I'm, I'm saying critical theory doesn't have any first principles, but of course there are a number of, of principles that are at work in critical theory at large and in Adorno's essays um, uh, in particular. Um, I could just, um, let me see, name a few of those principles. Um, the one is the principle, a uh, very important principle he inherits from uh, Benjamin, and uh, that is the principle that the task of the essay is really not to define or even to argue and propose is really more to show, okay? Um, so, um, what an essay is about is something that you don't necessarily find in its propositions, but rather you find in its mode of representation, in its mode of showing. Um, what this means is that 
the technique of quotation becomes incredibly important. Um, uh, Benjamin, of course, had this, this great project, the Arcades project, as we know, um, that, 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 that never fully became materialized, the ideal of which um, was um, to create a work only out of um, uh, quotations. And there are there are essays um, in Adonis Notes literature that are so full with um, uh, just this chains series of quotations and allusions and names that are being mentioned and references that are being made that you never really can figure out if Adorno has sort of a genuine argument of his own or if that particular essay is really simply a, a, a kind of um, um, a kind of construction made of um, uh, quotations. Um, um, then um, the um, other principle is um, that um, there must be some kind of affinity between uh, my own critical language and the subject matter that I discuss in my that I discuss in my critical language. So um, I had already mentioned this uh, earlier that sort of Adorno allows himself to be very much affected by the by the by by, by the poems he talks about at times, even sort of taking over some of the words these poems uh, use. So uh, so so there's a there's a there's just there's a very um, a close proximity at times. Uh, to to the works of art um, under discussion. Um, um, thirdly, um, what he what he does, um, he never offers comprehensive reconstructions of the works discussed. Um, really, the only form of critique we get really are, I would say, commentaries. Um, um, uh, furthermore. Um, doesn't begin with any kind of um, uh, theory that is then being imposed on the essays, rather the, the sort of the, the theories that are being developed have to come out of the reading of the essays. And um, uh, you have at times an almost um, sort of deconstructive um, a reading strategy, strategy in, in, in which he really tries to read a work of art against the grain. You know, he says this is how it has been understood, but it actually no, means precisely the opposite of what we always had assumed it it meant. This is this is also certainly a move one finds uh, in these essays. Um, um, uh, finally, um, you have um, irony as a form of self-reflection, in that the essay reflects on its own limits. So there's always a very strong sense of fallibility, of not being able to fully say what ought to be said in order to fully shed light on a given literary work. Okay, so there's so there's so there's, 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 so, so, so so Adonis essays very strongly embrace the sense that um, to actually sort of you know can say even have something like like an aesthetic experience. Um, uh, means um, that you remain almost constitutively incapable of fully deciphering the work of art in question, right? So, so a, a kind of a kind of fallibility, falling short, 
is, as it were, built into the very form of the essay. Um, so um, I think what Adorno wants his essays to be, then, really, he wants his essays to be um, uh, textures, one might say. I can't think of a better metaphor to describe them right now. Um, te textures in which um, an open aesthetic experience can take place in which um, we don't, in a way, in, in, which, in, in, which, in, which, in which the experience doesn't terminate by finding final interpretation or finding fixed concept under which we can consume uh, the work of art, but in a way you could say they're all what, you could say what happens in these essays, it's, it's a kind of infinite um, aesthetic reflective judgment, right? This, this, this kind of reflection does not come to an end in his essays. I mean, it breaks off at a certain point, obviously, because the essays aren't infinite. Um, um, uh, but the sort of, the, the, the inbuilt openness is uh, something that's reminiscent of the of the romantic fragment, the way that uh, Schlegel describes it. Um, so, um, Dr. Potts, um, yes. you, so you talk about... Uh, the the way that Adorno uses the essays to kind of achieve uh, or maybe create some sort of metaphor. And I, I think about Benjamin there, and I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you talked about how he was meticulous in editing the volumes of the notes to literature. So I'm wondering if, did you notice anything in looking at all the volumes as a whole? Was there sort of a, like a palimpsest created at all um, throughout all the volumes? Sort of like a... I don't know, something in its entirety that maybe Benjamin or Adorno was getting at? Because I haven't read um, all the volumes of Notes to Literature, but I'm just curious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would say no. Um, it doesn't... You, you don't get that kind of payoff. Okay, um, <laughs> that's what um, I and, want. Um, <laughs> I know everyone wants that. No, and I think the reason is simply because these essays were too much immersed in the particular context, in the particular situation, because they were really, I don't know, I don't like the word, let me use it anyway, sort of like intellectual interventions into particular post-war situations, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I mean, my sense, you know, sort of looking back at the book now, um, is actually that what, I think someone should do at some point is um, um, not to try to um, uh, sort of um, uh, it's, it's, it's not to find the element that binds all, binds all the essays together, but rather find the elements that differentiate the essays from 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 um, differentiate, differentiate the essays from one another. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason that I'm saying that is um, um, uh, because. Um, if um, we wanted to come back to the sort of pedagogical dimension of critical theory um, uh, after World War II, um, um, the, the sort of the, the, the pedagogical um, uh, intention at work in most of these essays, I think, really only becomes clear if one were to study the precise context um, of the first deliverance of these essays. And as I said, they're the oral pieces originally. So um, before they were published, they were given as public lectures or they were um, they were read on the radio. 
um, um, there are of, there is um, there is actually a dissertation um, uh, in the German dissertation from the 1970s that tries to arrive at a kind of totalizing reconstructions of the essays on literature of the notes to literature as a sort of cohesive work. Um, the problem is that you end up um, with a kind of very um, reductive and familiar narrative. Mm. At least in this particular dissertation that I have in mind, you, you basically end up with the loads of literature all being exemplifications of one underlying structure, and that's the structure of the dialectic of enlightenment. And of course, that it's 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 it's, it's not surprising that one would arrive at such a reading, uh, because the notes of literature come out of the dialectic of enlightenment. The the, the 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 first two essays in volume one come come directly out of his cooperation with with Horkheimer on dialectic of enlightenment, uh, and then one of his um, 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 later pieces uh, on Goethe's drama *Iphigenia* uh, on on Taoist, which I discuss in my final chapter, also very very strongly sort of returns to figures familiar from dialectic of enlightenment. Right. I mean, this is this is this is this is this is this is a frequent issue that I came across in these essays is um, that the reflections on on history they're they're very scattered but they're very persistent. They show up over and over again. The reflections on history tend to conflate history with structure. Right. They tend to conflate history in particular, with the structure of the Dialectic of Enlightenment, right? And the Dialectic of Enlightenment is, of course, a very peculiar book because it, 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 it sort of, it conflates a static and a dynamic um, uh, perspective in the very concept of the Dialectic of Enlightenment. And um, uh, so, um, for a uh, reconstruction of sort of the overall, the sort of the, the, the binding elements of, of, of all of these, these, these essays, I, I think one would probably simply relapse in a kind of repetition of the dialectic of enlightenment, and that's what I, that's what I, that's something I try to avoid. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, Doctor Plus, I think we've taken up um, quite a bit of your time today. Maybe a, a, a way to close our interview. If you could maybe talk about what you're currently working on. I know this book was published in 2007. So, if you'd like to maybe discuss what you're currently focusing on in your work. Yes, um, I'm actually um, still doing some work uh, on Adorno. Um, uh, believe it or not, but this is this is this is this is this is different work now. Um, I think it comes out of the book. Um, it uh, has to do with um, the ethical uh, dimension of his um, um, literary criticism and of his um, aesthetic uh, theory. Uh, in that, what uh, Adorno reflects on is um, uh, again and again really the question of um, how to live properly, how to live rightly, right? The, 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 the big question that comes up in his, in his great book of aphorisms, Minimum Moralia, uh, it comes up again uh, later during his uh, time uh, in Germany when um, you know, various people in public life um, start uh, pressing him about his famous statement about the impossibility of writing poetry after Auschwitz. And uh, instead of sort of 
rescinding that original quotation, he takes it a step further and says, well, what we really need to ask if, is whether it is even possible to live after Auschwitz. So, um, so I'm interested in um, how um, Adorno um, uh, tries to uh, articulate um, the possibilities of living a damaged life. Um, or you could say what I'm what I'm interested in is uh, is, is is kind of is, is Adorno's uh, Adorno's further reflections on on the Marxian um, concept of, of of alienation of alienated life, and um, um, I'm I'm looking at this in a very specific context, and that's the context of Adorno's time um, in California on the West Coast. And uh, in particular, I'm looking at his uh, friendships and collaborations with other exiles outside of the circle of critical theory proper. So those, 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 those crossovers between critical theory and um, other kinds of Marxisms I find particularly interesting. And I'm thinking here, of course, about uh, Brecht. I'm thinking about um, Hans Eisler, um, the composer with, which, with whom he um, co-wrote uh, a book uh, composing for the film. Um, I'm thinking also about his um, a friendship with uh, the director uh, Fritz Lang. So it's a book about um, a damaged life uh, in California, and it's a book about um, sort of the intertwining fates of um, uh, a German uh, critical theory and uh, German high culture, I guess we could call it, under the sign of all these, these different exile thinkers trying to think through um, the problem of alienation. Mm, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I hope to be done with it soon. I've been working on it for quite a while now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to reading that. I didn't realize Adorno had a close friendship with Fritz Lang. Yeah, I, I wrote about this. I'll, I should send you the essay, actually. Okay. It, was, it came out in, um, uh, in, in the journal Telos um, two or three years ago. I co-edited co a volume with um, Josh uh, Raymond uh, on Adorno and America. Oh, okay. so, um, so, so my so my book is basically you know part of that uh, part of that project. Oh, okay, yeah. fascinating. Well, Dr. Poss, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Was a, was a real pleasure. Well, thank you for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Critical Theory. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ploss. I encourage you to tune in next time when my guest will be Avner Vaz, and we'll be talking about his new book, When Words Are Called For, A Defensive Ordinary Language Philosophy.